So Courtney and I took our first trip to Yosemite in 2020 at a time when I desperately needed to get out of town and reevaluate my entire life. And as we got there, we were introduced to what's called a controlled burn. When foresters and park rangers intentionally burn portions of the woods for very real benefit to the environment. On one side of the park, there was a controlled burn. On the other side of the park, there was a California wildfire. Throughout the entire year of 2020, wildfires racked up $12 billion of damage, making it the third costliest fire season in California's history. One fire was set on purpose to clear underbrush, to recycle nutrients back into the soil and provide great benefit to the environment. The other fire, on the other hand, was thought to be started by lightning, a very natural occurrence that ignited <clears throat> trees and brush in California during a time of drought. And even though the second fire was naturally occurring and did indeed damage some property, it had a great benefit for the environment and those who lived there. Arson, however, is the setting of fires for altogether different purposes. Arson is the criminal act of deliberately setting fire to property. And for arson to be criminal, there must be criminal intent and destruction of property. Arson is a deliberate act. It is a destructive act that does not contribute to the well-being of one's neighbor, but is actually meant for their harm. What we say and do can either be of purposeful intent for the building up of Christ's church, like a prescribed burn, or it can be intentionally damaging like arson. Perhaps you've heard it said before that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is false. Especially in the church, words are often wielded as weapons used with the express intent on tearing down God's people rather than building them up. This morning, I want to encourage all of us to be mindful of what we say, for with a word, we will either edify the church of Christ, we will either edify this church, or we'll be guilty of attempting to burn her down. I have a few points this morning as we walk through the text. The first sort of major hook, borrowing from the previous discourse, the previous pericope, the previous eight verses we studied last week is to put on Christ and don't go back. The therefore in the beginning of verse 25 is a nod back pulling the previous passage in with us. Paul is building a landscape, a new household, a new theonomy where God's people are a new creation, a new people in a new family that forms a new church. And as such, those of us belonging to this new creation are to walk in a certain way. 
specifically for the Gentiles that are there, they were to be those no longer bound by sin's power, no longer living as they did in the past. Paul's admonishment is don't go back. Do not be like the dog that returns to its vomit. You have been and are being renewed. As those who belong to Jesus, you are in the process of being renewed. Walk in that newness. And as new creatures, Paul then instructs this young church how they must act as those who build up Christ's church. Second point this morning, put on Christ, build up Christ's church. That put on and put off language is really important for us to understand what it means to clothe ourselves in the same manner in which God and in Christ they're clothed. And here, Paul gives us five negative prohibitions or vices, and he counters them with five affirmations or virtues to give a stark contrast between how we used to live, how we used to walk, and how we should walk. Between how we desire to live and how we should actually live. Five vices, five virtues, five negative or um, uh, five negative statements and five affirmations. I'm gonna walk through these now very briefly. That's not true, I'm sorry, that's a lie. <laughs> I gotta take my time, there's a lot here, but the first uh, vice and virtue pairing is this. Don't lie, tell the truth. Don't lie, tell the truth. Paul says, put away falsehood and let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And I wonder if one of the reasons that he puts this here is because there's some back talking, some side room conversations happening. There are some not so honest things happening within this church also. I think what's also in light here is that there is the affirmation to speak the truth, what is true, and the truth of the gospel, king, kingdom, and cross to our neighbor, in part because a lie is like a fire. All it needs is a little fuel for it to take off. And one of the most destructive things that you and I can do to one another is to lie on or lie to one another. But Christians are, all, Christians are kind of sly and kind of slick when we, when we think about lying, right? Because very rarely will we actually tell bold-faced lies to people. We'll tell a lie slant. We'll tell a lie with part of the truth. We'll tell a lie with part of the story so that there's a little truth mixed in with a lie. Two other ways that Christians tend to do this is in the form of flattery and gossip. Flattery is telling someone something to their face that you never say behind their back. And gossip is saying something behind someone's back that you'd never say to their face. Both of them are forms of lying. Paul says we must tell the truth to one another and resist the devil's temptation to deceive. Now, what's interesting about this admonition here is that it's a direct paraphrase from Zechariah chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. Look at it with me. Where Zechariah is prophesying and he says this to Israel. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments or justice that, are, that is true and make for peace. 
Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. In love, no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. In Proverbs chapter 6, we get another list of things that God declares that he hates. And in verse 19, he says, A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers, these are things that God hates. Instead of lying, he says, tell the truth. Why? Because to tell the truth is an act of love. It's an act of love that shows that you care for your neighbor, that you care for your own soul, not to sully it with the pollution of lies that would indicate to those around us that you are a a child of the father of lies rather than a child of the father of truth. But instead, love builds Christ's church by telling the truth. The second vice and virtue combo is this, don't lose your temper, be angry for the right reasons. Don't lose your temper. Be angry for the right reasons. He goes on to say, be angry and do not sin. Now, I don't know how to actually do this. I'm just going to be honest with you. To be completely and totally honest, I repent of my anger quite often because I don't know how to do this. One commentator says that righteous anger is as difficult as it is rare. Because not all things that we deem ourselves righteously anger over is actually righteous anger. It tends to be self-righteousness masking itself as righteous anger. But essentially, he says, don't lose your temper. Be cool as the other side of the pillow. Be cool, cool as a cucumber. Be cool as a polar bear's toenails. He says, and look at it with me, he says, be angry and do not sin. Anger, and let me just say this, anger as an emotion, is, it's, it's good. Anger tells us what matters to us. Anger's the hot button that shows us what we actually care about. But the anger here in the Greek, it's, it's not anger in the sense that I'm fired up about something. This is actually fury. It is an anger that has festered and has bubbled up to the point where it's fury and fury is destructive. This is a wild and violent anger. This is an anger, a fury that gets us out of control. And this type of anger makes you desire to harm another person. Paul says that you need to put a time limit on this anger, on this fury. And as quickly as you can, resolve that conflict with your neighbor And if your neighbor chooses not to reconcile and you've done all that you can, then leave it to God who is the ultimate judge. Why is it here that Paul says, don't let the sun go down in your anger so as to not allow Satan to have a foothold? That's interesting. But on this particular point, it is the area in which Satan himself can dig his claws into our life and into the life of the church Because I think Satan will use this furious anger as an opportunity to try to divide what God has put together. Fury is like a staph infection. In college football, we had a bunch of nasty stuff swimming in the ecosystem in a locker room. It's pretty disgusting. Sisters, be glad that you know nothing about it. In the summer of 2006, there were guys that were passing staph infections to one another uh, for various different reasons. 
And in one particular guy, he had a sore, it festered, it began to fester and grow. That infection got so bad, he was a day away from it entering into his bones. That staph infection allowed to linger and fester almost killed this man. Fury is like a staph infection. If you don't treat it soon, it will fester and spread throughout the body. And if not taken care of, it can kill you. Third, pairing. Paul says, don't steal. Work to contribute. Apparently, there were some people who had spent their livelihood as stick-up kids, as robber bandits. There were those who had made a livelihood of stealing actively or part of their life. And Paul as a pastor, Paul reminds them, uh, he has them in mind as he writes here. And the admonition here is that theft or stealing takes away from the well-being of the community. It pulls away from the health and the flourishing of the community. It is something that is destructive to the community. So Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, but work with his Hands. This is good. So he says, don't steal, don't take from the community, but contribute. No longer take, but contribute. Replace the thrill of stealing with the thrill of helping others. And, and, and he says this. He says, let them do honest work with their own hands so that he may have something to give to someone in need. In our work, in our jobs, the things that we do for a living, are we contributing to the life of that company or are we taking from it? In the life of our church, are we stealing or are we contributing? Paul's admonition is to contribute so that you've got something for everyone to give. Next, he says, don't spew evil, but speak life. Don't spew evil, but speak life. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your Mouth. This is, let me just, let me just pause. Let me just acknowledge that I know I'm all up in your Kool-Aid. You want to know how I'm all up in your Kool-Aid? Because this has been all up in my Kool-Aid all week. We're going to get to some light here in a minute, I promise. But Paul has a very real intent in mind here. He says, don't spew evil, but speak life. I, I like that, that word, this corrupting talk, that phrase. Corrupting talk, it, it, it's not exactly 100% clear, but the sense of the word is let no diseased talk come out of your mouth. Let no poisoned talk, let no decomposing talk come out of your mouth. Let me illustrate. If I were to give you the name Harvey Updike, do you know what he's famous for? The Alabama fan in here does. In 2010, Harvey Updike, really upset at the outcome of a particular football game, took an incredibly powerful herbicide and poured it at the base of the trees at Toomer's Corner in Auburn, Alabama, effectively killing these trees that were several hundred years old and bringing a great judgment. And just to let you know how bright Harvey was, he called into a sports radio show with a pseudonym, basically telling them of what he did, and he closed the call with, Roll Tide. That a way to tell on yourself. But what the arborologist called this herbicide is he said it was so incredibly potent and strong, those trees had no chance of survival. Quite literally, they died. 
When you think about diseased talk, it is talk that poisons the environment that we are in. It actually decomposes. If the church is a living thing, if we are a living organism, if we're a tree, it decomposes and poisons that tree. But I think there's a deeper reason for why our words can sometimes cause decay. Our words can be so diseased, it causes the life around us to wither and die. And I think there's a hint of how we can understand this by understanding Jeremiah's conversation on the heart in tandem with Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our hearts and our tongues are inextricably linked together so that what's in our hearts will not stay hidden. What's in our hearts will come out like a jack in a box, which I believe was created in hell. I hear that music anywhere I go and I instantly am in a panic trying to run away from a clown randomly popping up out of a box? Come on, man. Man, that's of Satan. I'm just telling you. What's inside of that jack-in-a-box won't stay hidden. It'll pop out. So what's in our hearts, friends, will always come out. We can only fake the funk for so long until our mouths reveal what's in our hearts. Paul says that let your words, let them, do, let them be good as such as building up. That's the positive affirmation, an indication of our heart. An indication of the condition of someone's heart is what they say when they feel safe. Are their words diseased or do they breathe life into those around them? Our words should build up and give grace to one another. I like this, that phrase there. He says uh, that it may give grace to those who hear. This is good. This means that our words should be a gift to one another. And our words actually equip the hearer with what they need to accomplish the task that God has set before them. Life is hard enough without some people poisoning the well all the time. And let me just say this. We, um, I don't know if you have these friends, but I have these friends sometimes when it's every time I'm around them, it is poison, 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 poison. And we are not immune to said poison. It will begin to affect and infect our own souls. It is good to surround ourselves with men and women who speak the truth, who speak the truth in love and whose words offer grace. Now, after all of that, are y'all all right? Okay, okay. Now, after all of that, we get an indication as to why Paul is going to great lengths about speech and why it's so important what we say to one another and how we say it. For this former rabbi, for Paul, he's recalling a period in time when the people of God spoke poorly to one another and they spoke poorly to God. It was a time of rebellion that he knows could happen again. Next big hook this morning, put on Christ and end the rebellion. 
There's an interesting phrase here. He says here in verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. There have been many commentators and pastors I've heard through the years who've taken that phrase and they've related it to the reality that grieving the Holy Spirit is to not trust in Christ by faith. That to grieve the Holy Spirit is to not be saved. That is what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit. But one has to stop and ask the question, why would Paul insert and interject a concept out of line with the context of this passage to make this say something that it doesn't say? So we get verse after verse after verse after verse about language and speech. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 31, language about speech and how we should say. It seems clear to me that at the very least, grieving the Holy Spirit is linked to our speech and what we say. So why would Paul shift in the discourse of our language about speech to interject salvation in the midst of it? The answer is he doesn't. How do I know? Because these words come straight from the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 63, verse 10, as Isaiah is speaking about the impending doom of Israel, and he's rehashing and rehearsing Israel's failures over and over and over again. He says this, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. What Paul has in mind is that period of time of wilderness wandering. It was a time of rebellion. It was a time when the people of God forgot who God was and what he had done. It was a time when God sent, well, let me say it this way. It was a time marked by grumbling and complaining. If there were three things that the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament are really good at, they're really good at forgetting, they're really good at grumbling, and they're really good at complaining. And those three aspects mark their lives, many of their lives in the wilderness, so that Isaiah picks that up in chapter 63, verse 10. And when you think about all that God had done, God called the man with the speech impediment to be his mouthpiece. That makes no sense. God caused plague after plague after plague to fall upon Egypt in a way that even Pharaoh's magicians could not replicate. He literally caused the Israelites to plunder their captors as they walked across a body of water on dry ground. They get into the promised land and then the first thing they do is they start grumbling and complaining. Why did you bring us out here? Did you bring us out here to die? When we were in Egypt, we sat by meat pots and ate to the full. Our bellies were full. We were happy and content in slavery to which Moses is like, huh? No, you weren't. Why did you cry out to me? Why did you cry out to God for 400 years for deliverance only to want to go back to that? There, there's an aspect in this where God makes quail creates quail for them to eat. He makes manna for them to eat. They run out of water. He takes sour water. He makes it sweet. He defends them against all of their enemies and they still grumble and complain against one another and of God. Now watch this. I wonder if there's a little correlation between what Paul's previously said about them not wanting to go back 
and their words and their actions matching up to walking in a way worthy of the Lord. I wonder if there's a correlation between that and the desire of Israel to go back into slavery when things got the slightest bit uncomfortable. I wonder if there's a correlation and a connection between what happens in us humans when we step out of familiar into unfamiliar. When we step out of dysfunction and into health. Because when you've lived in dysfunction for a long time, health actually feels like dysfunction. I wonder if the grief of the Holy Spirit or the grumbling, the complaining, the ungodly words spoken by those to whom Christ has redeemed. And then he qualifies this statement by saying the Holy Spirit has sealed you for the day of Redemption, this is really good. The day of redemption, there's a lowercase d and a capital case d of day of redemption. The big case d, day of redemption, is the day when God will judge every person who's ever lived. And those who did not, who did not profess faith in Christ, they will be burned up. His wrath will scorch them and the earth. But for those whose faith is in the finished work of Christ Jesus, rather than condemnation, they will receive commendation. Rather than the burden of God's wrath eternally, they will receive the blessing of God. He says the Holy Spirit has sealed you. You are a new creation. You've been made new. You've been welcomed into a new family, invited into a new way of life, and you wanna go back to the way that you used to live? Paul says in Galatians 3, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being completed in the flesh? And he later comes on to say, he says this, what benefit has come from those things of which you are now ashamed of? The end of those things is death. In essence, Paul is saying to grieve the Holy Spirit is to follow the path of Israel. It's to forget God. It's to grumble and complain against one another and to God. And he says, don't do it. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. He has sealed you so that you will receive your due reward. But our putrid language can bear witness that perhaps we don't belong to him. Fifth. He goes on to say, don't become verbally abusive, but to be kind. Don't become verbally abusive, be kind. Verse 31, he strings together five vices. Again, so so we, we had five sort of dualistic phrases throughout this passage here. He strings five vices and five virtues, five negative vices or five negative expressions here. And what are they? He says that they are bitterness, wrath, anger and clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. These are all in sense verbal expressions of anger. The sense of the word bitterness is, uh, you, guys, um, you guys ever intentionally eat a lemon? Yeah, not since I was like 12, but there's a, there's a bitterness, there's a tartness that's there. Perhaps you've eaten some collard greens and you went to eat the collard greens and they weren't seasoned real well and you taste the, the bitter of the greens. Now, ain't, that, ain't, that ain't my people, them, but I've been some places where some folks don't know how to cook collards. That's all right. 
Uh, perhaps you tasted accidentally the acid as you're trying to decide whether a nine volt battery is still good or not. Yeah. The sense of the word is the bitter taste that's on your tongue that corresponds to the language that we speak that is bitter toward one another. Wrath and anger are likely cognates, which means they likely are different words that connote the exact same sentiment. This wrath is that Greek word orge, which uh, um, if, if anger tends to be um, uh, uh, like, uh, like an explosion, like if someone takes a stick of dynamite and sets it off, if, 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 if anger is quick and flashy and immediate and then it's gone, uh, wrath or orge is like lava from the side of a volcano. It is slow moving, incredibly hot, and it damages everything in, in its wake. Paul says to put away wrath and anger and then clamor. Now, um, this, uh, last week I told y'all that I yell when I'm happy, um, which is uh, kind of off-putting for a lot of people because a lot of folks typically only yell when they're angry. I actually get really quiet when I'm angry. So like, if I get quiet, like, you know, there's something going on. I'm just giving my tales. Uh, if I'm loud and you can hear me, oh, he having a good day. It's wonderful. Uh, the clamor here is Paul saying that those who shout and yell and use verbally abusive language in their anger. So, so when you're thinking about men, especially in a patriarchal culture who would tend to use very verbally abusive, demeaning language to their wives and daughters and other women, Paul says that this is not the way of Jesus to put, that, to put those words aside. All clamor has to go. And then he says slander. Slander, these are abusive words falsely spoken that damage a person's reputation. And then ultimately malice, it is the use of words for evil intent. There is a sense in which this is a ladder of sorts. It's a progression of sorts that we might start out bitter and then we might get angry and then wrathful. And out of that wrath, we begin to yell and clamor. And then we begin to say words about someone or some place that's not true. And the intent to damage their reputation until you get to the point where you ultimately are using words for evil ends. And when you consider that these people are trying to figure out how to live together for the first time, Jew and Gentile together, histories and cultures in one place. If you're familiar with the Hatfields and McCoys, amp that up by about 20 generations. And these people are coming into this space from different locations, angry, simply because of your family. But Jesus is saying through Paul, no, that's not your primary family anymore. This is your family. You are new. I'm creating something different here. And as such, I'm calling you to live in a different way. So what is that different way? He says to be kind. Y'all, it seems like kindness is in short supply these days. I tell you what. I wish we could monetize kindness. I wish kindness could become an NFT or cryptocurrency because the world would be a whole lot of a better place if kindness were in abundant supply. He says to be kind to one another. Now, now this kindness doesn't suppose, this isn't 
fakeness. This isn't what I would call violent niceness. When you smile in somebody's face, but you have murderous intent in your heart. The kindness here is rooted in God's kindness on our behalf. He says to be kind and tender hearted. In other words, give to others the overwhelming, undeserved kindness of God toward people despite their sin, transgression, and rebellion. Why? Because that was you one time too. I like this quote. Matt, Matt Adair reminded me of this quote this week. We're talking about spiritual formation, and he says, you know, Dallas Willard said that one measure of spiritual maturity is your capacity to love your enemy. One measure of spiritual maturity is your capacity to love your enemy. I would go on to say that another measure of Christian maturity is your capacity to be kind and tenderhearted toward your sibling of a different culture or political opinion. Especially if there are past slights that inform how we regard one another. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. Let it be gone. Instead, be kind and tender-hearted. Now, I just, I'm, I'm just going to be honest with y'all. I don't tend to be a very tender-hearted man. This is something that's a struggle for me. And this week, I had to repent that I've not been tender-hearted toward brothers and sisters. I had to repent that I've not been kind. And there is, in all of this, there is such good news. And in order to get to this good news, Paul anchors his entire argument in chapter 5, verse 1. Fifth, and finally, put on Christ, act like God. I wonder if you remember where you were when it finally hit you that God doesn't hold your sin against you. And maybe you're here and you're feeling the weight of the condemnation of God's word. Perhaps you're feeling and sensing the areas in which you've not lived up to God's standards. And I I just want to tell you that if you are in Christ Jesus, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, What he tells us is there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's an incredible opportunity to drink from the kindness and the tenderheartedness of God. Do you remember where you were when it finally hit you? I remember where I was when I finally understood what it meant that God in Christ had separated and cast my sin as far as the east is from the west. In math, there's a mathematical reality called a vector. It's a line with two points that go in opposite directions. Those two lines will never cross. So there's actually a point where east and west never meet. There's a point where east and west never cross. And where my sin is, is in that place where no one knows, where we can't get to, 
that ultimately Christ Jesus paid for it with his very life. There is a reality where there, if there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that even now you're tempted to preach a narrative to yourself that is false. But the reality is, if you are saved, if you belong to Jesus, if your faith is in the finished work of Christ, even your slanderous malice, your lies, your anger or fury, even that God has paid for. It's why Paul reminds them of their identity in chapter five, verse one. He says, therefore, be imitators of God like what? Like children. That is who we are, children. It's why God is so long-suffering with us. It's why God is so kind and tender-hearted because he knows we can't get out of our own way. Regardless of how old we are, how long we've been walking with Jesus, ultimately we are still like children. And the command in verse two of chapter five is to walk in love. One could say that the commandment to walk in love is in direct contradistinction with everything he's just said all of these words that we're not to use, all the ways that we're, to, be, that we're to, to live. He says, no, walk in love. And what is love? Love is the active care and concern for your neighbor at the expense of yourself. It is for you, if you have a brother who's offended against you, it is for you to swallow that offense and to forgive him. And how often should we forgive those who have hurt us? I will give you the words of Jesus when he says seven times 70, which ultimately means there ain't no limit on forgiveness. And if you push back against that, I would ask, do you want God to limit his forgiveness of you? Baby, no. It's 1027 in the morning. I've already used up all of God's new morning mercies, and yet he continues to be kind. There's an aspect of our lives together and how we are edifying the church that demands that we ourselves forgive one another in the way and the measure in which Christ has forgiven us. So we might have some issues. I don't know a single church in the world that don't. But ultimately, the command is to act like God. Why? And here's where it gets good. Because Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering to the Lord. I love how the book of Hebrews categorizes and describes Jesus's ministry and sacrifice. When he, the author of Hebrews says that Christ Jesus was sacrificed once and for all, that he himself is the blood sacrifice that ultimately he says that the blood of bulls and goats never fully atone for sin. And yet the blood of the lamb pays for it all. Throughout the Old Testament, once a year, they would come and the high priest would offer a sacrifice to God where they would slit a bull or a goat's throat and they would let it bleed out into a basin upon which they would allow the flame of fire to lick it up. And the smell of that offering would permeate through Israel and up to the nostrils of God. A fragrant offering 
There's Christ Jesus himself on the cross, offering himself up. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive Jason. He ain't alive yet, but he's going to need what I'm giving him right now. Father, forgive Aaron. He's not here yet, but there's a day coming when he will need to be forgiven. And as he breathed his last breath, that the flames of hell symbolically burned him and the smell of his body enters the fragrance nostrils of God and God is pleased. It reminds me of Polycarp, one of my favorite church fathers who was the Bishop of Smyrna, who was brought before Caesar and his proconsul and he was asked if he would declare and denounce that Christ is Lord and Polycarp said, nah, bruh, I can't do that. And they asked him a second time, Polycarp, will you now renounce that Jesus Christos as Kurios and instead proclaim that Caesar as Kurios? And Polycarp at 86 years old stands up in front of Caesar and says, ain't no way. And then he goes to ask a third time and Polycarp stops him and says, four score in six years has my Lord and Savior been good to me. Why now would I turn my back on him? Go ahead and do what you will. Upon which they lashed him to a pyre in the middle of an of a auditorium in the middle of the Colosseum. They put kindling at his feet and they lit him on fire. And there in that stadium, the smell of his burning body offensive to those who were there smelling the rotting and burning flesh of a human being would have been off-putting, but to God, it was a fragrant offering. Why? Because this was a man who cared more about the person and work of God than he did his own reputation. And he spent his entire life fighting for the well-being of the church, even at the expense of himself. Friends, that's love. And all of this, all of this is the imperative to be and to act like God. We must be like God in our love. Be like God in our speech. Be like God in our forgiveness. And ultimately the charge for all of us, me being at the head of the line, act like you know God. Act like you actually belong to him. For just as some within the church of Christ act as arsonists, attempting to burn down what God has built, I'm comforted in knowing that God is an all-consuming fire, control burning his church so that she might be refined and purified. Friends, we are either building his church or we're trying to tear her down. Let us be those who build each other up in what we say and do for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. Let's pray. At the end of every sermon, I believe that God's word demands a response. So I want to give us a space right now to spend some time with the Lord, two specific things. If you're like me and God has brought to your remembrance words that you've used that do not fall in line with what Paul has just laid out, what a wonderful and beautiful time to repent knowing that when we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But perhaps you're here and you've never fully trusted in Christ for your salvation. Maybe you've been trying to do it on your own. Maybe you've felt like it depends on you to save yourself. I just want you to know that when Jesus, when we sing that hymn, Jesus paid it all, it's actually true. We don't sing Jesus paid some of it. We sing he paid it all. And all we need to do is receive the free gift of his grace and put our faith in him.
Let's take the next few moments to spend with the Lord, and I'll close us here in just one moment. Father, we have all fallen short. All of us have sinned. Not even come close to the standard that you've set. But Jesus, the gap between where we are and God's standard, you have spanned. You have traversed the chasm. Becoming the bridge for us to walk from where we are to where you are, God. So that we might be united with you. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would fill them with the joy of forgiveness, that you would fill them with the hope of grace, that, Father, you would allow us in our repentance to feel the freedom that our sin is is as far as the east is from the west. And, Father, for those who continue to act as arsonists within your church, Would you make us people who are wise, who put out the fires by your word and your grace? And would you preserve your church until the day of redemption? And so now as we prepare to sing these words to you, Lord, we need you. We need you more than we even know in the moment. So would you meet us here? We pray all these things in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.